0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg,
1: and I am Natalie Latovsky.
0: and we have a scrupulously researched episode for you today.
1: I've been or, hit, I've been hitting the Google pretty hard.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I'm, and I'm very excited to hear all the stuff. Some of it I've heard, but I suspect you probably have some things I haven't heard. This episode is one of many. I think we'll be doing. Uh, I think I already mentioned this last time, but I'm staring down fifty. And it seems like we're also talking about 40 more often these days when it comes to pop culture anniversaries. I'm not sure why, but I guess it's because if you are in my generation, then you hit the time period where you're just old enough to see stuff and then 40 becomes something.
1: I mean, we've talked about how 10 is kind of that sweet spot for starting to feel nostalgic about a movie. And so even though a 50th anniversary of something might be sort of a, a landmark year, really the 40th is like the 10 year olds plus 40 years equals kind of a 50th anniversary feel so
0: those of us getting to that point so there's a lot of 1981 stuff this year anyway that seems to be getting a lot of attention and i kind of wanted to revisit some that i know some that i don't and uh look at some of these together and some 71 stuff when we get the chance so we've been making a list of a lot of these just a short while ago we did the episode we didn't even really do it based on the year but it just kind of happened my bloody valentine was in 1981 mm-hmm. is it celebrating its anniversary and round about then i was looking and noticed that another classic slasher that is usually listed on everybody's top five or top ten lists for that boom period of that genre the burning was also coming up on its 40th and in fact this month may 1981 it came out at the beginning of may Thank okay. you. I thought, let's do The Burning. And we've only done this once before, but a few episodes back when we talked about The Beyond, it's the one and only time so far in Ghouls in the House we've done one of the infamous video nasties, one of the 72 films that was listed by the British Film Board at the time and, you know, uh, listed as obscene. And there's also like a whole thing about that. Some of those films were actually prosecuted, some of them were not. The Beyond is one of the ones that actually was never prosecuted, but was banned, if I'm remembering this correctly Mm -hmm. the burning however is one of the video nasties that was actually successfully prosecuted so it's like in the upper tier of the horror movies That any true horror fan that wants to like run down and tick off the list of video nasties you got to see the burning at some point because it's one of the top 39 if i remember right that are the prosecutable the prosecuted ones so i felt like i must have seen this at least once or twice in the old days on cable and like you say, when I say cable, I mean the movie channels.
1: Yeah, and I've never seen it until we watched um, it.
0: And then in looking stuff up, realized what, a, what an incredibly significant film this is in terms of not just horror history, but film history, uh, and not all of it good, but on the presumably good side for most people. It has the film debuts of three people that went on to very significant film and television careers. It's the first appearance on film of Holly Hunter, Jason Alexander, and Fisher Stevens. And of those three, given their careers, I was also interested to note if any of them have been reluctant to talk about it. And after just a very quick search, I found that uh, Fisher Stevens and Holly Hunter have both spoken very openly and casually about being in The Burning. Jason Alexander not so much at least immediately and of all of them he's the one i would least expect to be Mm -hmm. willing to talk so but they all started on this it was directed by a guy named tony malem british director uh and it was edited in fact by the guy who went on to direct nightmare on elm street 2 which we've seen quite a bit of in documentaries lately jack shoulder but perhaps most infamously It is, for all intents and purposes, the movie that gave Harvey Weinstein his break in the movie business, where he and his brother had been doing concert promotion up until that point, were looking for a movie to produce to start getting things going on that side of things, and this was the story they picked. Weinstein wrote part of the screenplay, or rather his brother did, with this other guy, Peter Lawrence, and he came up with the story, and as anybody who knows anything about Harvey Weinstein... Some of the allegations related to his long career go all the way back to The Burning, in fact, and there are instances of actual stories about it. And we felt while watching this movie that uh, it's not hard to see that this is the man who's behind the scenes crafting this. But one thing I'll say right from the outset is, we decided to do The Burning, and then also a short time ago, we had already watched a documentary on streaming called Cropsey, which is all about the New York State folklore about an escaped mental patient that's killing people usually at a camp. And we'll go into that, folks, believe me, because this is where Natalie's research is going to shine. She has a lot of stuff to share. But The Burning was very loosely based on the idea of the Cropsey story. We, we quickly discovered one thing about The Burning is that uh, it's considered one of the slasher classics. It's got Tom Savini effects in it. He turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 for this. He thought this one seemed more interesting to him. This is a terrible movie.
1: It's so bad.
0: We, I, I found it not only boring for most of it, but also, as we'll discuss, when it wasn't boring, it was usually just because it was unpleasant. It was not a good slasher movie. As you pointed out at one point that I really liked, you, you said Savini's special effects really aren't that special. <laughs> I mean, he does a lot of his same gags again. He does a reverse of the Kevin Bacon gag for Friday the Thirteenth. He does some of his other stuff, but they also this was the uncut version we watched too, by the way. And none of the effects seem shot to their advantage. You don't. There's no real good gore shots if you're interested in that. And for the most part, it's an incredibly slow, dull poorly made movie where and another thing i said right away is like you watch any friday the 13th in the series you sort of instantly know the characters good character introductions you meet your group you know you usually develop some kind of connection to one or two of them and think, okay these are the ones and in the burning there's no one to connect with and most of them stay ciphers and you're just waiting for something to happen and it doesn't
1: Maybe what we should do is pull it back a little bit to the beginning and kind of give a, a vague rundown of the plot. And then we'll explain why we thought it was terrible. Sure. <laughs> but essentially, it starts out at the beginning as if it were sort of an origin story of this Cropsy legend. That it's a person named Cropsy. He's the caretaker at a summer camp. The kids hate him. And... They want to play a prank on him. So they do by like putting an actual skull that they seem to have just randomly dug up from somewhere. I don't know where kids at summer camp actually get access to a human skull.
0: It was a very specific thing. It had like uh, like candles in the eyes. And like and... worms
1: crawling out of it. Yeah. It's very specific. So they put that in his shack where apparently at summer camp, the caretaker just sleeps on a cot with all of the hazardous chemicals next to him, like in bed.
0: I'm convinced that in the brief shots we get of him normal looking, we're supposed to think he's like disabled in some way or challenged in some way. You weren't certain of that and felt like it just may be that he's like, he's drunk or, or just like,
1: yeah, I mean they linger on like liquor bottles on the windowsill, yeah. and like later, someone in talking about him says that he was drunk all the time. Yeah, so it's
0: hard to say. Hard
1: to say, but basically they sneak in there, light a skull on fire, and I bang on the window till he wakes up. Understandably, freaks out because like literally anything will freak you out when you're first waking up, and knocks the skull off the windowsill. Onto the bed where he lights himself on fire and then runs into a can of gasoline that he keeps next to the bed, (laughs) Um, which, you know, sets everything on fire. And then he just does a long, ah, creepy fire shot.
0: It's a group of boys that, that come up with this brilliant plan to torment and potentially murder the caretaker. Although, obviously, they don't intend to kill him or injure him. But the, the odds are good based on what they're doing.
1: I also uh, don't understand what they thought they were going to achieve. Because it's not like they put something in there and then he woke up and was like, "Whoa!" and got scared. They're at the window yeah, looking in, right. banging on it. So even if he hadn't set himself on fire and just got freaked out, he's literally looking right. right at them. He knows who did it. They will be in trouble for it later.
0: I will also say that like at this point, it's your standard opening to a lot of these horror movies where it's the flashback that sets up. This is why the person in the movie was wronged and twisted into the killer they'll become, right?
1: Yeah, and, I mean, it's basically just a knockoff of Friday the Thirteenth's opening where they're t- showing the counselors getting, you know, murdered
0: before. Yeah, it's also worth noting, too, that a lot of people talk about this. There's a lot of similarity in the sense that this, you could be forgiven for turning this on if you didn't know the Friday the 13th series and turning it on at many points along the way in the movie and thinking, oh, this looks like a Friday the 13th movie because it basically looks like one all the way through. Mm-hmm. Except that it's not, and trust me, the worst that Friday the 13th the series ever gets is better than anything in this film. This film fails miserably. And also, though, it was not copying, even though it came out after the first one, these were in development and production simultaneously. So it's just coincidental. This is Camp Blackfoot. We started Camp Blackfoot, and then we had to Camp Stonewater for the rest of the, the film.
1: Almost the rest of the film, there's a slight divergence where you, the audience, are left in no suspense whatsoever about what happened to the man on fire, Cropsey, which is he went to the hospital, he was very badly burned, there's a weird montage of them wheeling him out of the hospital while voices tell him all the things that are going to go wrong in his life. I like
0: how you hear one of the doctors basically tell him, so anyway, don't, don't, Keep resenting those kids that tried to murder you. Don't go out there and try to hurt or kill people. You'll be all right.
1: I know you're going to want to, (laughs) but maybe try not to. Also, everyone will recoil in fear and hate you. Yeah. And you're just going to have to learn to live with that. All right, have a good life. Bye, get out of my hospital.
0: Basically, like, the only black actor in the entire movie is also put in the thankless position of being, like, an orderly that is, like, desperately like desires to show some doctor buddy of his, the awful looking guy in the burn ward or whatever. And it's like, it's such a terrible part and a terrible character to be stuck with. And that's it. It's otherwise an extremely white film.
1: Yeah. And basically the plot from there takes like a slight detour through a very bustling red light district for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, It's the next door city. Yeah.
0: I don't know where he is. I don't know.
1: For like five minutes, you're like in the red light district. Yeah. In, and and then back at summer camp.
0: Like outside of White Castle. Uh, White, Ch- White Castle. Outside of White Chapel. Or <laughs> White something.
1: Castle, White Chapel. It That's, all kind of fits in. Really. I'll leave
0: it in fine. It's the same <laughs> thing, really. Last night I was watching the old In Search Of episode on Jack the Ripper. So it's back in my head again.
1: During the autumn of 1888, there occurred one of the most baffling crimes in the files of Scotland Yard. In the Whitechapel area of London's East End, women walked in fear of their lives. A wave of terror had been caused by an elusive murderer known as Jack the Ripper. Anyway. We're a Ripper household here. (laughs) We are. (laughs) So, I mean, essentially, the rest of the plot takes place in and around the summer camp it's meatballs meets friday the 13th
0: meets uh, dirty dancing a bit you said because it yeah, looks kind of, like, of that feel and once again we think well this is one of the movies that wet hot american summer got some of its vibe from although meatballs i think is the main one but. yeah and i will say that like at that beginning things looked like I expected them to at the beginning. Like, okay, here we go. We're into a good 80s slasher. The guy's got, there's a full burn shot, you know, the guy coming out of the thing. And I thought, okay, now we're going to start segueing to our characters. And I also thought the music was kind of neat. I already knew that this movie, one of the many interesting distinctions is they have Rick Wakeman from the band Yes uh, doing all the music. And it's a really weird, atypical, synthy, kind of thing going on that sounds nicely eerie and even feels like it has echoes of phantasm and dawn of the dead and a couple other things i thought this is kind of neat the mood feels good and then the movie literally goes nowhere we thought like the after he kills the hooker in the city in the sequence that seems to not fit at all there's no murder and no like slasher related thing until we figured at least halfway into the film mm-hmm. we couldn't look at the exact time code but it had to have been at least halfway and basically the entire time until then is just watching a succession of young men trying to molest young women in in extremely unpleasant ways that even by eighty standards felt like you're just watching raw footage of what they're going to use in court when they arrest yeah. these guys,
1: and I mean, also not to gloss over the prostitute being murdered, that felt so out of place. It's like it was like a one scene pitch for like a a reboot of Jack the Ripper. It's a
0: different movie. It's entirely. a completely
1: different movie. It's kind of He's and like a trench coat and a big hat. Yeah, he and- also
0: doesn't maintain that look necessarily or that silhouette. Through the rest of the film. It doesn't make any sense. There's
1: also like a lot of lingering shots on the marquees of the porn houses that show you exactly all the different movies that are playing. Maybe
0: they were just doing that so Harvey would know where he wanted to go back to later that night. He was night. Just, like
1: taking notes.
0: is <laughs> like that one.
1: I, I don't know. And like it's like goes home with a prostitute who seems to be like whatever. Like I handle all kinds. Yeah. Like not judginess but like can we get on with the sex because this is a business after all and i gotta make my money and the minute he steps into the light she sees him we don't really no and she's like holy crap no and then he strangles her and murders her with a pair of scissors he finds on the table
0: which kind of sets up the idea that later his his weapon of choice will be garden shears at the camp so it's like he as you pointed out he upgrades when he goes to camp but
1: but it feels completely unnecessary. It yeah. has nothing to do with it. Up until the entire sequence of him doing that, he hadn't been a villain at all. He'd no. been a victim.
0: And also, as you point out, although the second time we we thought it was starting to happen, the, the girl gets away and he's watching them the camp for the first time. But it's like the first person killed is a, is a hooker. And like you were saying, it already feels like an odd thing because it was all boys that did this to him. So like if we're dealing with your standard thing, which we usually are, which is he's out for revenge, Mm -hmm. then why kill a woman and why kill this prostitute? I mean, yes. Not just a
1: woman either, like an older woman. She
0: rejects him, yes. But it's like it doesn't make sense. And then we leave that behind anyway because then for the rest of the movie we're at the camp. And, and it never
1: comes up again. No. Never like a passing mention of it. It's a very uncomfortable, out-of-place scene that basically all it does is set the tone of women who say no are going to get it.
0: Which is then something that continues through the film where we see at least twice two different couples. I say couples. Two different pairings because they're not couples. mm Although one of them kind of unfortunately is depicted as if she really kind of is. like this is their byplay, which itself is its own problem. but yes it is. Two different pairings of boys and girls at the camp where the guy is just textbook relentlessly pursuing and, as you'd say today, negging and you know doing everything possible to try to have sex with them despite constant repetition, very clearly, of no and zero interest. And in one case, like I was suggesting, in one case, she actually acquiesces eventually. And I can never tell by today's standards, you look and say, yeah, but how much of that is just her deciding maybe it's going to be safer just to let him do this rather than potentially have something worse. But it seems like we're supposed to believe that she's probably actually really into him and this is just what they do.
1: Yeah. But it but it
0: still continues that thing of saying no is just the step toward the yes. And then also when we do see them say no, they're usually the first ones killed. So the women in this are punished for not having sex.
1: And the first time it happens is particularly awful because it's sort of a situation where they already established much earlier in the film that this guy that she's with makes her uncomfortable to the point where she's already talked to the camp director and said, I don't want to go on this overnight canoe trip because this guy makes me so uncomfortable. And rather than validate her feelings in that the camp director says, I'm sure it'll be fine. Go on the overnight. But I tell you what, You get uncomfortable, you have my permission to get in a canoe and come back to camp. Very safe. Like, that's something that someone's going to do. And that even comes up later because she's the first person to go missing of that group on the overnight trip. And the first reaction from one of the other girls is, well, the camp director did give her permission to go back if she felt uncomfortable. Like, it's something they all know. Yeah. And that's sort of the first inkling of it, which is your feelings aren't valid here and it's all in your head. And she's even starting to doubt herself of, well, maybe I am actually interested in him a little bit. I don't know. And one of the other girls tells her, well, then you might as well get with him and get it over with of like this. Will you, won't you just do it then?
0: When you consider that Weinstein wrote the story and his brother worked directly on the screenplay, and I'm not discounting the possibility that Harvey Weinstein also wrote this part Mm -hmm. of the screenplay because he's right there. And this was their pet project to get themselves started. They'd seen Texas Chainsaw on Halloween. They thought, this is what we'll do, get a horror movie going. It it brought to mind to me, like I was saying after we watched it, the thing you see now, it's a more recent recurring thing you see people bring up on Twitter all the time now in the wake of so many things that have come out over the last particularly five years, where the phrase that keeps coming up is, when people show you who they are, believe them. And like a corollary to that is when you see stuff like from Woody Allen films or like so many other people that have come up, it's both frightening, it's chilling, and yet very telling when you realize that these sorts of people, part of what appears to be the pleasure for them is letting you know that they know. They, they want you to know that they know and that you can't do anything about it. We've seen that in politics too. In this, we kept hitting lines of dialogue where we were thinking, is this Weinstein saying, like there's one line I wrote down, whereas the other, uh, the guy, Ned Eisenberg, actually, who's gone on to be like one of the most recurring lawyers in law and order history. And at one point she says, well, he said something like, well, if she's scared of me, why'd she go with me? Which is one of the standard things you would hear from a predator. Mm -hmm. and there's quite a few bits and pieces like that there's also the character of glazer who's the worst who fun fact friends appears as the wrestling promoter in the sam raimi spider-man so i thought i recognized his face and there he was and he's he's the worst of them he eventually gets with the girl that he's going after she's the one that you know almost seems like this is their play which is a horrible way to depict it. I think know. they're
1: trying to depict it like it's their play, but I I will flat out say he rapes her. He rapes her. It's not a situation that she can get away. He's a lot bigger than she is. He they're keeps in,
0: blocking her.
1: He all blocks the way. her in, yeah. he presses her against a tree, he presses her against a rock, and she basically does the okay, but not here so that she can kind of walk away and like do it at least in a place where she feels a little safer. Probably thinking maybe she could lead him back closer to the camp and somebody would come and find them and they wouldn't be so isolated and ultimately just sort of goes along with it. But it's just one of those situations where to me, it's a very clear situation where she repeatedly not only says no, but says stop and he doesn't. And eventually she just sort of relents because she's terrified of him.
0: What's interesting, too, is that all of these things we're talking about happen, for the most part, before any real slasher killing happens. Like, in other words, this is all we're getting in the movie is just like a good solid 30, 40 minutes of particularly these two guys Mm -hmm. going after their respective targets, their prey, and not taking no for an answer. Or if the girl does happen to get away, which in the case of Ned Eisenberg's character... She gets away from him in the water. He he also assaults her physically and she's saying no and goes away. And then he does the standard thing of, you know, what the hell are you doing here for then? And gets mad.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and that's all that's all the movie is. And then the- let's
1: <laughs> And her situation <laughs> is terrible too, because not only does the killer then kill her before him, well before him, and in, I will say in both these pairings, they both get it. In the yeah, end, right. The the guys do end up getting killed. I
0: did also look up and there's an equal number of male characters killed to female, which doesn't excuse anything, but I just thought it was interesting.
1: But it's like not only is she killed, but before she's killed, he takes all of her clothes from the shore and like distributes them through the woods, like this literal walk of shame mm-hmm. that he makes her do naked in the woods trying to find her clothing so that she can get dressed again. And she's got to, like, walk through the woods naked, afraid, like, upset, angry, like, all these things after just being assaulted by somebody and then ultimately gets killed. And it's just insane. It's insane.
0: And in terms of, like, being a slasher film, it was also interesting that, like, one of the only remotely intriguing things they did is they do this bit where they basically knock off five characters in the space of 30 seconds. There's something that I'm sure if there's anyone who's a fan of this movie, and if you are, I'm, I'm not really interested in talking about it with you. But I'm sure, I mean, the thing is, I'd always heard The Burning is one of the ones It's like, oh, you know, The Burning, one of the main 80s slashers. I don't know why that is, because it's absolutely awful. But If there's one thing that probably is the showpiece for this film, it's the Raft Massacre. They're all in the raft, including Fisher Stevens' character. He's the only one of the three big names, by the way, who actually gets killed. Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter just vanish at a certain point and never come back. The Cropsy guy is is hiding in a canoe that they think might have somebody in it. They're looking for the girl that's missing, and they're heading closer. And at one point, we thought that's what was going to happen.
1: We the, thought maybe they were going to find her body. The one there.
0: surprise. Because yeah, the thought, audience
1: knows she's dead, but they yeah. all just think she's missing.
0: And yet, when they get close to it, what actually happens is the, the killer jumps up in the scene that, by the way, is in our banner, like the the definitive shot, which is a nice looking shot of him, like in shadow, silhouetted, you know, with the garden shears. And he kills all five of them instantly in just a tour de force of Savini effects which again, like I said, are not that great, not necessarily because Savini isn't doing his usual shtick there, but that they're not shot that well. You don't really see anything clearly enough to really get it. So I don't know why anybody, but anyway.
1: It's like, it's so frenetic.
0: And yet the pacing otherwise is glacial. So it's like, oh, oh my God, we suddenly got that. And then nothing again for a long time. And there's like a couple of weird random moments during the movie where they do a red fade out which is kind of a neat gimmick but it would be a neater gimmick if it like had been done with some kind of deliberation like here's the spots where we do it it just kind of happens in a couple places
1: they just seem to do it because they um, could
0: carry also one of the interesting things about this from a slasher perspective is there is no final girl our two final characters really are a young guy who's like the geeky guy who's played by brian backer who didn't go on to huge success, but most people will see him and recognize him from Fast Times or Ridgemont High.
1: Where he also played the geeky guy. It was
0: the same. I mean, that's all he yeah. did. He and Ned Eisenberg were also both in an 80s like sex comedy, I remember from the old days of cable, Moving Violations, which I remember mainly because it had Jennifer Tilly in it and because the lead in it was John Murray, Bill Murray's younger brother, who they decided to get because they couldn't get Bill Murray at that stage (laughs) in his career, and they forced John Murray to play his brother. And he does a pretty good job. Uh Uh-oh. Sounds like trouble, kids. Don't worry. Don't let it get you down. Life goes on. You guys will bounce back. I can feel it. You're that kind of people. Listen, I'll be seeing you kids around. But when you watch the movie, it's also kind of uncomfortable because you know that he's like doing an impression of his brother because that's what they wanted. So it must be the same casting person maybe that did that. So Brian Backer is Alfred. And as an article that I found online mentioned, the problem with this movie is not only the bad people in it are bad, but the good people in it are bad also in that his main plot point is that he's watching one of the girls in the showers he's a voyeur and the guy runs everything who turns out to be one of the ones who had actually tried to burn Cropsey years ago which was no surprise although the movie seems to act like you're shocked at the end that he yeah, is like
1: the very end it's like did you catch this yeah, it's like, and yeah. like they go back to the moment it's like yes
0: yeah so yeah. he kind of like takes him under his wing and says oh it's okay and he doesn't like punish him for like watching one of the girls and violating her privacy and instead, the two of them are the team that basically takes out Cropsey at the end.
1: And also doesn't report him to the camp director.
0: No. And, and of course, he's responsible for nearly killing a guy, so he's got something in his past. Nobody here is worth liking in any way, except perhaps maybe some of the girls who never really get any personality or character to even get to know any of them and and the one of the only things i found positive about any of the depiction of the women in the movie is there's this heavier girl in the group that crops up a couple crops up crops up a couple of times and the one thing i thought was kind of refreshing about that was she's bigger than all of them and yet they never use her to be the target of a joke about mm-hmm. her weight, she's just there.
1: She also doesn't die. She gets to and come she, back to camp at the end,
0: yeah, and she's fine. but Which as a curvy lady, I did like. but then you also, if I remember, I'm not sure you ever even find out her name or, or that
1: was what I was about to say too. The reason that both of us keep just saying this character or that character or this person is because they rarely use each other's names. There's like one girl, with like a real 1970s ice skater haircut yeah, right. na- named Tiger.
0: It was like the Peggy Fleming kind of thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Um they call Tiger and I just remember that cuz also at one point she's wearing a shirt that has a tiger on it and hence the name. That's the name, I <laughs> guess. But it's just one of those where I don't I don't remember any of the character names and we just watched this last night. Like yeah. this was not like oh we watched it a couple weeks ago and now we're We just finished watching it at like 11 o'clock last night. Yep. And I can't remember any of the character names because they don't really use them all that often. I think somebody was named Sally and somebody's named Susie because nobody is inventive at all in any of this.
0: There's nothing much.
1: There's no getting to know any of them. No. And... I think it's what they were trying to do in all of the fake out parts where you think, oh, somebody's about to get killed by the killer, but they don't. It's something else that jumps out. Like the guy looking at the girl in the showers or like the counselor coming back to the bunk when somebody was going there and saying like, why aren't you at the dining hall? So there were all these little moments where I guess in a better made movie, they would serve to actually develop the characters. But they don't. No. And it, it kind of gets to the point where I can't even really say I have an opinion one way or the other about most of the characters who were killed. That Like, there are the two really terrible guys who I'm like, well, they got killed. And the two girls who, you know, got assaulted by them and you feel really offended that they got killed. And then there's just like a whole bunch of kids where you're like I don't really know anything about them and obviously from like a human standpoint like nobody should get killed in any right. of this.
0: But this is the kind of movie But we're from watching. like a
1: movie going standpoint you can kind of see how some characters in movies when they get killed you're like feeling a little bit like well at least they're not in this movie anymore. Right. And sometimes you feel that real pang cuz you're like I can't believe they just killed this person. And nothing, nothing for no. most of them. There's just no emotional connection to them. And I think part of that is the fact that if they are trying to capture that feel of like a Halloween or something mm-hmm. like that, the difference is Halloween has Deborah Hill.
0: Yeah.
1: Like Halloween has an actual woman involved who is making these characters feel very real Because they're written from a woman's perspective, or if nothing else, at least advised from a woman's perspective about how they would interact with each other. Even
0: when that's not the case, I mean, like a lot of the Friday the 13th and other movies, you still feel like you're you're seeing people. You get to know characters. Yeah,
1: especially the first and the second Friday the 13th. I think the characters of all the whole series the first and second friday the 13th the characters feel the most real mm-hmm. and the less like a caricature yeah, or like an archetype it's, it starts to kind of diverge a little later in the series and then like really diverge
0: but i guess the thing is when we were watching this last night i i my heart quickly sank when i, I was really looking forward to this one because i i just assumed this would be much more entertaining and I didn't remember it very clearly, and I thought, well, maybe I'll also remember it as we're watching it, because surely I saw it, but I actually don't, so I'm not sure if I've ever seen it, but it does still seem likely, because around that time, I, I would have been watching everything that was on, you know, HBO or whatever, so this was definitely on, but I just, this did not stick with me. I recognized the face of the, the melty face, which is not a bad looking face for the couple minutes you see it of the Cropsy thing that Savini did is like his face at the end. But I've seen that in books, including Savini's own book. So it's it's not something that stuck with me. And uh, even the showdown isn't much of anything at the end. And ultimately, the more I've let this sink in, and the more I, as we're talking about it now, I didn't even necessarily expect to be quite as definitive as we're being. But I really think this movie is awful and offensive and then when you factor in the fact that so much of the stuff that is offensive is there most likely, if not definitely likely, because the person shaping it is themselves a predator, screaming out loud, this is who I am through these characters. I don't know how anyone can have any respect for this film at all.
1: Plus you add on top of that, the fact that it's supposed to be this sort of breakout special effects moment for it Tom Savini. Isn't really. And the thing is, His effects in Friday the 13th are way better than anything in this, including some of the same types of bits and gags and things that he did in that that he's trying to recreate in a different way here. Yeah. They look worse here. I mean, like Fisher Stevens character gets his fingers chopped off. Yeah. And he's holding it up with the blood spreading out. And it looks like there's somebody underneath there holding a fake hand. Yeah with blood spurting the out real, of it. The
0: thing that really struck me is Ned Eisenberg's character is the one on the raft that gets the reverse of the Kevin Bacon shot in the original Friday the 13th, where Savini did the thing where the arrow comes up from under his neck with his head on, you know, the fake neck and all that. And you, know, you know what this is about. You can picture it. And then Eisenberg's character, same setup. He's like la- leaning against something on the raft. They got his head, fake neck. Only in this case, he's getting stabbed from the front. Well, first of all, from the front... Loses some of the the like twist on it by not having something pop out and, and shock you, but also because it's being lit in the day, rather than in the cabin. on Friday Thirteenth, you can see this incredibly gray plastic thing under his head is not his neck. It doesn't look good. So it's fascinating to me that this is like a step along the way for Savini. And of course, he was doing a lot of these. Another one we'll probably get to soon is Prowler which also has a lot of, hit, like, some signature stuff from him. But this one, I, I'm not going to say that the effects aren't as good as some of the things he did. I just think that they weren't shot to any good advantage to really show them. Although even the blood doesn't look really real. It's it's, it's that this, very
1: red temper paint it's, blood.
0: It's a bad, bad movie that for some reason has a much better reputation than it deserves. And I'm, I'm not sure...
1: My theory on that is simply the fact that you do have not just one, two, three actors in this who went on to do other things in their careers. And I think people just latch on to things like that, Hmm. where you look at any other slasher movie that has somebody in it who suddenly became a big name. It's usually just one person, right? Like it's Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th. It's uh, cutting class, oh, which also, you know, which we watched then
0: didn't even bring ourselves to talk about maybe <laughs> one day and coming to us right now in the mail from Shout Factory is he knows you're not alone, which uh, or is it? He knows, he knows you're not alone. I think it's he knows you're alone because he knows you're not alone because <laughs> he's there. He's staying far away. I don't remember. Anyway, it's the one where Tom Hanks made his film debut. Are you ever
1: alone when a killer's in the house with you? Isn't that something that's heartwarming?
0: (laughs) You're never really alone. But anyway. (laughs)
1: But I, I think that that's one of the reasons people cling to things like this. And they say, you know, oh, it's such a horror classic. It's got Fisher Stevens in it, but it's also got Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter, like all of them, in this movie. And it's like, yeah, it does.
0: They don't do anything, though.
1: Not really. I mean...
0: Holly Hunter was apparently happy that it paid her rent, and that's about it.
1: And hey, that's not for nothing. Yeah. I'm I'm glad it did. And 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 if she
0: escaped the movie without being accosted by Weinstein, then she's ahead of the game. Which is apparently
1: more than a production intern can say. Yeah. And it's just one of those where, like, there's not that much to me that makes it something that would want to be revisited.
0: And yet we talked about it for about a half an hour. (laughs) But I think we're done with the burning. The music's
1: good. The one thing we really can say is that the music's very good. And I like Yes a lot as a band. I'm into the synthy stuff. And I think it really is the one redeeming factor.
0: When I was really, really into playing guitar, like the the height of my wanting to learn the most intricate stuff and like the best I ever got of like really getting to play some things like something Simon and Garfunkel, James Taylor, whatever. My friend, Laura was like really trying to step me up in different things because she was even better and and teaching me stuff and we went to see is it steve howe from yes and we went to see steve howe play live and because it's a club you know you could be right up there and just watch his hands and he was there doing some of his solo stuff play guitar it was one of the most amazing things i ever saw his fingers were like a blur and it was one of those like cliche moments where you think i'm gonna go home and smash my guitar over something (laughs) because (laughs) what's the point and the music in this, it's atypical. It surprises you because it doesn't feel like exactly what you would expect. You'd expect like the suspenseful piano thing, which he does a little of that too. But
1: Or like strings. You yeah. usually expect the like deep strings. But it
0: was really good. And it's like the one thing in this movie I think, well, it's such a shame that that his efforts are wasted on something. But okay, so having covered what's considered a slasher classic and realized that we desperately don't like it. What's notable about it, however, as we started out, is that it's a variation on what is already, what was already apparently a well-established uh, piece of local folklore, the Cropsey legend. In the movie, and all the movie materials, they spell the name of the caretaker Cropsey, C-R-O-P-S-Y. But in almost all instances of Cropsey cropping up, in folklore in the New York State area, it's Cropsey with an E, S-E-Y. And one of the things we also watched that we we rewatched it, but we'd seen it months back was a documentary from 2009 called Cropsey, which is one of those many instances we've had of watching documentaries that we were excited to watch only to discover that it really wasn't about the thing it claimed to be about at all. (laughs) And while it was still interesting to watch, you sit down to watch a documentary about Cropsey, what you're being sold is, oh, we're going to find out what the story is behind this local legend of this guy named Cropsy and what he did. Turns out it's actually a true crime documentary about one specific real world murderer named Andre Rand, who was killing people, killing kids in, in the New York area and who they just kind of tangentially connect to the Cropsy legend by saying, well, you know, we all grew up around there hearing the stories of Cropsy, but here on Staten Island was a real Cropsey. And then the rest of the documentary is about him. It never tells you where Cropsey came from. Or what it really was. And this is where I'm probably going to hand over most of this to you. Because you've done more research than apparently most people (laughs) that bother writing or talking about it have ever done. Because we couldn't find anything until you started looking.
1: One of the things that bothered me watching it, in addition to the fact that they literally spend two minutes interviewing a couple people and have them tell the version they heard of the Crapsy legend and then never go back there, is the fact that they basically frame it as if here's Andre Rand. He is the real life crapsy. This is where the legend comes from. Except the tales, the stories, the legend are far older than the Andre Rand case, which didn't happen until the late 80s. And this legend has been around for longer than that. And the thing that especially bothers me reading about it is now Any research that you try to do online, what is Cropsey, where does the legend come from? All of these websites use that documentary as if it were the basis for it. So now tons of websites say Cropsey is based on the real life killer, Andre Rand. And all these websites use that as if it is the Cropsey legend and the origin for it.
0: And the one thing in particular that was really bothering me, which you've pretty much solved, is that in all of this, no matter how much I was digging, I couldn't even find any reference to where the word came from. Like Cropsey is not a normal sounding name. It's not something you just come up with. And I was thinking, all right, well, it must be a place Or a family or something. But where's the evidence of where this Cropsy legend began? And every damn site just references the documentary. And here's Andre Rand. But then you started digging further. And in fact, also, we talked to somebody.
1: (laughs) That's right. The first thing I did before I really started researching is call my mom. (laughs) Um, Mainly because my mom went to summer camp in the Adirondacks in the late 60s and early 70s. She grew up in Binghamton in upstate New York. And I thought, well, this is like our target right here. My mom grew up in that area. She went to summer camp every summer. She loves campfire stories. And like, that's her thing. So we're going to call my mom and we're going to ask her, has she ever heard of Cropsey? And the answer is no, but yes. Basically. Yeah, the name
0: didn't mean anything to the her. The name Cropsy
1: meant absolutely nothing.
0: There wasn't like an instant
1: recognition, like, oh, Cropsy. But then she got kind of wistful and started talking about some weird stuff that happened up at summer camp. One of the stories is one that we can't really find a news related basis for she said sometimes she thinks sometime between 64 and 67 there was one night at camp where they showed the movies all night in the lodge and told them they couldn't go outside because it wasn't safe and they needed to keep them all together
0: which now in retrospect in another conversation or two she thinks may have also been possibly related to the other incident you're about to talk about and
1: she just kind of conflated them together yeah so it's it's not weird they would have done like an all-night movie fest in summer camp and probably told them don't go outside we're done like
0: flashlight under the the chin and go because the counselors are
1: tired and they don't want to chase you around the woods in the middle of the night just don't go outside (laughs) i want to rest but She remembered very distinctly in the early 70s when she was at a point where she was essentially not a camper so much as like a counselor's aide. It's sort of like that point when you're a tween and you go to train, like a counselor in training. Mm -hmm. And she said she remembered. She was a CIT. She was a CIT. Here we go! And that their cabin where the CITs were was farther away from the other cabins. It was like down a long path through the woods and it was a little more isolated. And that there was this summer when they were all in that cabin together where everybody was terrified to walk through the woods. There was something going on. She thinks they were looking for someone. She remembered that he was stabbing people. And that they weren't supposed to go alone. They had to go in pairs. We
0: also need to point out that at this point in the phone call, we were both looking at each other like, well, this is weird. <laughs> because, but but intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But she remembers it very vividly. She also made a point of saying, in a very bragging way, that she's always been one who's been able to walk through paths in the woods at night without a flashlight. It's just a skill she has. So I, I come from... Uh, a genetic line of people with excellent night vision Uh, i did not inherit it i bump into everything all the time even in daylight (laughs) but she remembered it so vividly that i thought this can't possibly just be a campfire story yeah and it took a heck of a lot of research before i finally found it And let me tell you, she was very excited when we called her back later and told her the actual story of what happened and that she's remembering it correctly.
0: Yeah. How often does that happen?
1: Right down to the point where she remembers one night all of them huddled in the cabin because they heard bloodhounds in the woods.
0: Well, all this is true, dear listeners.
1: Entirely true. Because in the summer of 1973... The Adirondacks, in the area around where she went to camp, um, which was around Paradox Lake, which is an amazing name for a lake, first of all. And that surrounding area with the towns and the woods there, it's sort of like there's a whole group of lakes that border a patch of woods. It's very popular for summer camps and just general camping. So for several weeks in that summer... There was a manhunt going on for a serial killer named Robert Garrow, who had not shown up to trial for a case in which he had abducted and molested a girl. And they were like, we should probably find him. And before they could find him, he murdered four people over the course of several weeks by stabbing them. While running through the woods around the Adirondacks and where they eventually caught him was on the property of his sister, which was basically just on the other side of the woods from the lake where my mom went to summer camp. And so this whole experience she has and remembering it is absolutely true, which is fascinating to me, not an escaped mental patient like a lot of these legends go, not a situation where he's like avenging his family, which is another, another version, version we've yeah. heard of Cropsy. Although
0: you've got stuff for that too.
1: So this was something that actually happened.
0: And also probably and postdated any beginnings of a Cropsy story.
1: Yeah, the best I can tell, the first time anybody tried to actually write down sort of the oral tradition of Cropsey was in 1977. Okay. um, Which is when there was an article written for New York folklore, which was a magazine Mm -hmm. uh, journal basically put together by a folklore society in New York. And obviously it was Cropsey was well enough known at that point in 77 that they felt the need to document people's recollections of it. Right. So How far back from there it goes, I'm not entirely certain because I have not been able to find that journal article, just citations of it.
0: Right. But first, so first we had established that your mother's memory was deadly accurate, one might say, about that particular And not just that,
1: but in researching the history of it, a lot of people who have written about sort of that summer of fear of Robert Garrow talk about the fact that it wasn't really reported on nationally because another little thing was happening in the country called Watergate and it was the midst of the Vietnam War. So the national news was so focused on those two things that there really wasn't wider reporting of it, which means this is something that terrified a local area in New York, upstate New York, in the Adirondacks, And really stuck with them. It's the kind of thing that would lend itself to, like, remembering that happened and talking about the fear and the person in the woods. Right. You know, who's going after people. He, in fact, did kill someone at a campsite. Like, not a summer camper, but he did kill a camper in the woods.
0: But all this, despite feeling like something that could evolve into the kinds of stories we're now familiar with mm-hmm. would not necessarily link him to the name Cropsy, But then in delving further, you've actually found finally the kind of stuff that I was finding most frustrating, which is where does that word come from and all the other versions of it. And apparently you've, you've pretty much solved all that.
1: I think so. And I will say that obviously I don't have access to like academic journals or articles. Doesn't so doesn't seem like you need them. No. But what I will say, I guess in saying that, is that it's hard for me to know whether or not anyone else academically has right. come to the conclusion that I'm coming to now. Right. Meaning, I'm hoping I'm not the first person to put all this together. I do think if I can do this with Google, that yeah. surely anybody academically studying folklore, studying legends would have at some point done this and maybe published it in a way that I just can't see it.
0: And similar to what you were just saying about the localization of was the Garrow Mm -hmm. situation. It's also possible that part of the reason why it's so difficult to find the backstory of where Cropsey as a name becomes associated with all this is just because most people who are familiar with this already took it for granted for the very reasons you're about to lay out. But for us, there was no associations. So it's like where's crop? Why Cropsy? What's that? Mm-hmm. And so then you started piecing all this together.
1: It took a lot of searching. I mean, I was like many pages deep into my Google search, and most of the earlier pages were the ones I was talking about earlier, where they're the like Cropsy comes from the case of Andre. It's like it doesn't. It, it doesn't. does not. No. And in a sense, a documentary that I thought previously was interesting if not all that informative about actual Cropsey you know I sort of looked at it if it had come along a few years later it would have been a true crime podcast yeah and I don't think we enjoyed
0: it much the second time
1: I don't think so either and I I thought at first it was something that wasn't that informative but still kind of interesting and now in doing this research I think it's actually really damaging and detrimental to folklore that it should have been a true crime story about this guy.
0: They've basically co opted the word to the point now where they've swamped everything online. Right. Yeah, and I'm I know that wasn't their intent necessarily. But...
1: No, but it it is irresponsible, yeah. I think. Yeah. And I, I one of the things I had said when we were watching it again is that the biggest problem is they were too close. the subject matter. Mm. They couldn't take the step back that they needed to have the perspective on it from an academic standpoint. And it's unfortunate that they couldn't. But my whole sort of tangent that led me to this came from a website called Forgotten New York. It's forgotten-ny.com. It's a fantastic website. And he basically goes and walks through neighborhood by neighborhood in new york with a very specific goal of documenting talking about looking into the history of really hyper local areas Mm -hmm. so i found an article that he did where he is walking along cropsy avenue in brooklyn and this is in the bath beach area um sort of a place where Before it was like sort of city Brooklyn, it was like where wealthy people would go and try to like they named it Bath Beach because they wanted it to be fancy like England. And then when that became not suburbs enough and they kind of moved on, then it became more working class and more people moved in who sort of turned it into just a livable area as opposed to a place where you go to summer.
0: But here already is the first time for us we're actually finding a place that has the word Cropsey.
1: Not only that, but in New York. Yeah, right. um, Like across the bridge from Coney Island, essentially. Mm. And he talks about the fact that Cropsey Avenue is named after the family of a German immigrant to the area named Casper Krepser, who had been there since the 1700s when it was still called New Utrecht. Um,
0: I know New Amsterdam, but I didn't know. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, And there's a lot of, apparently a lot of things in that area named in a way that are also very Dutch. So it must have been where the Dutch and the Germans kind of melded together Hmm. in immigration, like where their areas touched. Um, But he'd been around there since the 1700s and his family later changed their name from Krepser to Kropsey. And the most famous descendant of his is the painter Jasper Cropsey. And he comes up sometimes when people talk about the Cropsey legend, including the documentary on their own website, where they say, like, where does Cropsey come from? They said basically the only person we know named Cropsey is Jasper Cropsey, who was a painter and has nothing to do with any of this. Right. The thing is, he kind of does. Because... The Cropsey family, of which Jasper Cropsey was a member, includes all kinds of both dignitaries and sort of pillars of the community like Jasper, and also strange mysteries and crimes all related to the Cropsey family.
0: And I should also just throw in that one of the few things I found was a USC uh, oral history thing that had been posted on their website from their folklore department where someone who'd grown up in long island i believe talked about always going to boy scout camp and hearing legends of judge cropsy coming after you and one of the things you discovered was that one of these cropsy family members was a judge
1: yes uh that would be james church cropsy of the same cropsy family who uh lived from the 1870s to the 1930s, who was the police commissioner in New York City and later a New York State Supreme Court judge. So he was, in fact, Judge Cropsey and in no way a murderer, stand up guy involved in the court system, just generally as a judge.
0: But because of all the other weirdness that you've seen that comes up with the Cropsey family, it starts to make a lot more sense why you'd latch onto that name as a generic term. For so much that's weird or macabre
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and what was the one 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 thing was a story you told me earlier today about like one of their the girls in the family had gone missing and
1: oh yeah that's like deep into the mystery which i will totally get to okay. but let me finish with Sorry. jasper
0: don't want to rush you that's fine
1: <laughs> all these legend stories have a rhythm to them that's... you gotta build you gotta build to the girl in the swamp you okay. can't just start with the girl in the swamp okay fair enough so uh Talking about Jasper Cropsey, just as a a piece, Um, he was part of the Hudson River School, which if you ever watch Antiques Roadshow, they come (laughs) up every so often, especially when they're on a town in the East Coast where somebody Mm -hmm. brings a painting and they're like, it's from the Hudson River School. Lots of landscapes, lots of nature. They just kind of liked being outside. So one of his more famous paintings is called Looking Oceanward from Todd Hill. It's T-O-D-T. Tot Hill is an actual place in Staten Island along the greenbelt which is sort of the woods they talk about in the Cropsey documentary where everyone's so scared of them. Yeah. So because of that painting and because it's so well known they renamed Tot Hill to be Cropsey Overlook.
0: Which you think they would mention in that documentary set in Staten Island that is all about Cropsy, but I don't remember them bringing that up. And it's you? not
1: even like a little known fact. If you go to the, the New York Parks Department website, you can look at all the different yeah. parks right down to the tiniest ones, including Cropsy Overlook, which is listed on the Parks Department website with a photo of the hill That kind of shows you exactly where he was sitting when Jasper Cropsey painted the scene of the hills looking out to the water. Gotcha. So already in Staten Island, there's a place called Cropsey Overlook.
0: We not only got a place, we got a family that it comes from. Yeah.
1: So also around sort of the same time period that Jasper Cropsey was around, one of his other relatives, Andrew Bergen Cropsey, in 1908, murdered his wife out of jealousy. There it is. And so you've already got now a murder in the family committed by someone named Cropsy, who, best I can piece together as the story goes, his wife was having an affair and sent a letter to her lover that was misdelivered to her husband. <laughs> Which you know, Oops. yeah, it's quite a misdelivery. I don't know. Maybe she addressed it wrong and it came back to the house or something. But he killed her, like I guess, in a fit of rage. It's like sort of listed as a crime of passion. But the especially interesting piece, and bear with me while I find one of my many tabs that's over. So. Apparently, after he was arrested and charged with killing his wife, this was his statement. I did a rash act. I'm sorry. I suppose I'll go to the electric chair. That's it. That's what he had to say on the matter.
0: He's not wrong, I assume.
1: Um, I don't know if he did go to the electric chair or not. Uh, part of the problem is to get to a lot of newspaper archives, you have to be a member mm-hmm. of the sites, which I am not. But I do get at least the the descriptive brief or like the first paragraph, right. essentially, from the articles.
0: So still, we've now got a Cropsey murderer at this point. And now
1: that was a case where best I can tell, I believe he shot his wife. He did. Here's here's the headline From the New York Times, July 22nd, 1908. Andrew B. Cropsey murders his wife, shoots her in Bath Beach home, and calmly waits till the police come. Jealousy, cause of act, misdirected letter said to have reached him, written by his wife to another man. So there's no uh, stabbing, no axe, no hook hand. He doesn't
0: have a hook for hand.
1: Like any of these. Right. Pillar of the community. Um, Although in a lot of the legends, in fact... Cropsey is a pillar of the community Mm
0: -hmm. and that's
1: part of it. And some of the legends talk about how he's avenging the death of a child or of a spouse or something like that who Mm -hmm. was killed due to somebody else's negligence. But it's not so crazy to kind of see how that could get pulled from a situation where Andrew B. Cropsey, pillar of the community, and... In fact, they say in the first part of this article that I can see member of one of Brooklyn's oldest families and a lineal descendant of Casper Cropsey, a pioneer of Long Island. So, yeah, it's not crazy to see how a legend could kind of get pulled from that. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the first bit that I saw that kind Mm -hmm. of felt like it could be at the roots of the legend. And. In addition to that, not that far from New York City, there is a place called Cropsey Farm, um, which was, in fact, started by a different member of the Cropsey family and only a few years ago labeled a heritage site. But until around 2006, from the time the farm was established in 1893 by the Cropsey family, it was run by. By the Cropsey family. And in fact, that the last descendant, essentially, who had owned and run the farm still, as of the time I read an article about it, was living on the farm property that they had sold to become a community garden. Hmm. So if you live close to there and you're driving on your way up to the Adirondacks to go to summer camp, maybe you go down Cropsey Avenue on your way out of town. Maybe you pass Cropsy Farm when you're coming out of New York.
0: Maybe you see Cropsy a lot as a word. A Maybe
1: you drive right through Cropsyville, which is a town northeast of Albany that was named after Valentine Cropsy, another member of this same Cropsy family. There's a whole town called Cropsyville, and that didn't come in upstate up New York, and no one mentions it. A whole ville of Cropsy. Amazing. And if you were going to any of like the lake areas in the Adirondacks where the summer camps were, you'd probably drive through Cropsyville. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you'd probably drive through the place with the name on the sign and it would not be such a strange word to you. Um, but in addition to all of this, and maybe not necessarily tied in to the legend so much as to just the general misfortune of the Cropsey Mm -hmm. family is the fact that at the very, very turn of the century, we're talking even earlier than the 1908 murder committed by a Cropsey was the 1901 murder of a Cropsey. Now this didn't take place in New York. It took place in North Carolina. However, it was a member of the same Cropsy family. And it's something that is actually in a lot of the history and legends in North Carolina, because this story of this murder has resulted in a lot of people saying they have seen her ghost. It's like a part wow. of the ghost sightings in North Carolina. This is
0: a whole different uh,
1: Which is the side. murder of Nell Cropsey in 1901. Of the Brooklyn Cropsies. Uh, They make sure they say that. And basically, it was a case where she was seen arguing with a potential suitor uh, outside her home, like at the doorstep. And this suitor was somebody who was from the wealthiest family in town. It's not a case like some of these historical stories are, where you get... Usually the son of the wealthiest family in town who's trying in vain to pick up, like, a local scullery maid or, like, somebody who works at the flower shop and then murders her and usually gets away with it in those stories because that's what happens. Because they're rich. Yeah. This, however, is a case where they both were from very wealthy, well-to-do families. And she disappeared from their home after speaking with Jim Wilcox of the Wilcox family of that same area. And he, through the rest of his life, maintained his innocence in this case. And in fact, really the only thing that his wealth afforded him was protection when the townsfolk all came to the jail and wanted to impart their own justice Mm -hmm. on him. And it was, Nell Cropsey's family who begged the people of the town who were ready to just kill him to let the justice system do its thing. Hmm. And he was tried and convicted of her murder and maintained to his dying day that he didn't do it. So Nell Cropsey was missing for 37 days after which her body was found in the Pasquatank River, essentially the Great Dismal Swamp. Um, Is where they found her floating, which if ever there were an appropriate name, it was already called that. It's not like it's related to that, but the Dismal Swamp. And it's a situation where you can associate the family name with this sort of murder of legend. And the murder case is complicated by the fact that several days before her body was discovered... The family received a letter that was postmarked from Brooklyn in New York, telling them that the police had arrested the wrong man, because they arrested him as soon as she disappeared. Yeah. Telling them the police had arrested the wrong man, and they had details about the case, including where they would find her body. And where he told them they would find her body is about where they found her body. But it was an anonymous letter. Nobody knows who wrote it, it was not local. It came to the family from New York, of all places.
0: So maybe another Cropsy.
1: Who knows? It's a, a very strange case that sort of gripped that area in North Carolina and kind of still does. They have their own legends about the ghost of Nell Cropsey. In fact, when I was trying to find any kind of journals or books or articles about it, I found somebody had written like a fictionalized novel about the murder of Nell Cropsey. I was just
0: about to say, surely some of this stuff has inspired storytelling because it's perfect for that.
1: It really is.
0: I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie that's, but maybe there has and we're just not aware of it. I don't know.
1: Maybe. I don't remember seeing anything. I would
0: think we would have come across this. Because the fact that it would have any association with the Cropsy name, you would think that would come up in articles about the other stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. In fact, I could actually read an entire article from also from The New York Times, November 26, 1901, that talks about her disappearance that I found online. Um, They hadn't found her yet at that point and Hmm. it's this whole article all about her disappearance all the bloodhounds that they have out trying to find her the search parties more bloodhounds it's always the bloodhounds as is very typical especially of that kind of time period they spend a lot of time talking about how cultured and smart and beautiful she is Mm -hmm. and It's just one of those where they set it up to be like, she is this angel. Sure. And we have this other guy in custody who clearly is a monster for having like struck down such a a beautiful, loving, Mm -hmm. smart girl. Supposedly they hadn't found her yet, but ultimately that was true. Mm -hmm. And whether or not Wilcox actually did it remains one of the mysteries of the case. He was found guilty, but he says he didn't do it.
0: I will say that all of this research, at least is an aid of resolving the frustrating feeling that we didn't understand where the word Cropsey, the name Cropsey, comes into play. All of it makes perfect sense now that we know there's a history, there's a family, there are places, there are tragedies, murderous activities, all of which are associated with a name that then you could easily see being slowly, like slowly evolving over the course of multiple campfire stories into everything else. And even if there's no direct connection to other elements, like a hook for a hand or an escape mental patient, you can see how that would connect eventually to mm-hmm. the Cropsy name. It's like, okay, we know the name Cropsey because we've always heard it associated with tragedy and mystery and, and murder and. You know, it's also a local thing, and and, uh, maybe there's this guy who's called Cropsy, and then suddenly it becomes a thing. And it's not so hard to understand now. They described him as a monster, six and a half feet tall, 260 pounds, with one horrible distinguishing feature, a sharpened stainless steel hook, where his right hand used to be. But it took a lot of work to figure that out. And surely, if something is this big uh, a piece of folklore that had inspired a, a well-liked, if still terrible, slasher movie, and a documentary... Not that, just one. Yeah, lots of... You
1: should add Madman into the That's mix. right.
0: That's right. We haven't done it on the show or on... I don't think we ever talked about Doctor of the Dead either. We might
1: have. We watched it. I think
0: we might have. I don't know. But we did... There is the 1982 slasher Madman, which is also the movie that Galen Ross of Dawn of the Dead doesn't really want to talk about. But she has plenty of issues. But that movie was basically originally, I think it was called Cropsey, and then they changed it when they found out the burning was happening. Mm -hmm. And then they, they still based it on it, but they fudged some details. So yeah. And now here we are. And documentaries... Like Cropsey, the 2009 documentary that, as you point out, has unfortunately done a great deal of damage to actually trying to figure out the history of what this folk tale, what this legend is about. But you punched through that and figured out some interesting stuff.
1: Well, clearly, I think for me, it was really important to understand whether or not there were actual real world events That you could tie into this legend. Because to be honest, usually there are. I mean, usually there's some kind of experience that happened, or uh, a mysterious case, or a strange disappearance, or even like down to maybe there was a year where there was a swarm of locusts somewhere that like ate all the crops and then weird stuff started happening. Like there's always going to be a thing that happened. Right. And to me, a court case about a guy who was committing very heinous crimes in the eighties doesn't explain a legend that has existed since at least the mid early seventies. Yeah,
0: and now you've got something that stretches back to the nineteenth century, actually further earlier than that even seventeen hundreds, eighteenth century.
1: Yeah, I mean if you really want to talk about the the roots of the, the family, yeah, the, family. the history of the family, especially in New York, especially around the Staten Island and Long Island area, mm-hmm. it's something that makes a lot of sense once you start to put two and two together. But I think if they'd done that in the documentary, then it wouldn't have felt so creepy or so much like a horror movie or or maybe they didn't even think of it. I don't know. But to me, it's really important to try to at least understand where the legend comes from. Because to be honest, until we had watched the documentary the first time, I'd never even heard the word crops And
0: I'd heard it Probably because I'd read at some point or another or encountered the burning in articles about slasher movies. And I don't know if I'd ever, like I said, don't remember now if I'd ever seen it.
1: And the only other thing I would add to it in terms of, no, none of this really explains the whole part about it being like somebody who's an escaped patient or like on a rampage. I mean, in a sense, sort of the story my mother remembers of the real world event he was certainly a crazed killer that mm-hmm. was running through the woods. But one of the things I did find when I was researching that incident was the fact that in that area was where Danamora prison was. And apparently that prison was so notorious for having people break out of it and having such terrible violent offenders there that there have been actual books written entirely about the history of people escaping prison at Danamora. So I think that could also tick that box for escape mental patient, escape prisoner. You grow up in an area be. where that
0: happens a lot in the news. You yeah. start to use that as a trope. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that. And
1: I, I could see that taking roots somewhere.
0: Thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NB That's NB lit of sky and Arnold at doctor the dead. That's me. Our movies this episode were The Burning, 1981, and Cropsey, 2009. I don't know what you're talking about. Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. The strangest part is that after all these years, after the biggest manhunt in Two Pines history...
1: They never found the killer. Some people say he's still up here in the woods, waiting for the chance to kill again. And I say, I say they're right.